Okay, Steve, today is going to be different. It is. Yep, because today you're not my co-host. Today, you're a guest on the show. That's right. So how does it feel? Well, it is the best show I've ever been a guest on. I'd agree with that. And I bet as a guest, you'll have more than a few numbers for us today as we talk about the multifamily 2020 mid-year outlook. Hello and welcome to this episode of the Freddie Mac Multifamily Podcast. I'm Corey Aber. And I'm Steve Guggenmoss. And I'm Sarah Hoffman. Hey, wait, wait. I'm supposed to introduce you. Haven't you two listened to how these other shows go? Oops. Sorry. (laughs) All right. So I'm I'm excited to have Steve Guggenmoss, VP of Multifamily Research and Modeling, and also my usual co-host on the show, and Sarah Hoffman, Director of Multifamily Research, as guest today uh, to talk about the Multifamily 2020 Mid-Year Outlook. And looking back over the past, uh, I don't know how many quarters, the outlook has been a pretty consistent theme. Uh, The multifamily market is looking strong and there are affordability challenges. But this time it's a little different and a lot more complex. Uh, We're going to go into that with Steve and Sarah uh, and what they're seeing in the market and why things are different this time. So uh, thanks both for being here. Thanks for having me. Yeah, great to to talk about some of this work. (laughs) All right, uh, Steve, uh, let's start with the big themes, you know, the top takeaway message from the outlook, and then then let's get into the detail. But uh, let's start overarching themes. Sure. And, uh, um, you know, I think it's been interesting uh, as as Sarah and I have worked on the outlook, whether it's the mid-year outlook or the or the uh, annual um, outlook at the beginning of the year over the past, you know, three, four five years, it's it's become a story of like how much different is the story right now? Um, Because we've been in a situation where demand has been increasing significantly, um, supply hasn't kept up, and that's pushed us into a position where rents have generally been growing and property prices have certainly been growing. And uh, and that's, um, as everybody knows, that's also affecting affordability. And that's just been a consistent story for for such a long time now. And And I'd say that we had similar discussions at the beginning of the year um, but this time around, um, not at all. Uh, I think that uh, the story has changed completely, as as life has for um, for our for us, for our listeners. Um, uh, the COVID nineteen, the pandemic, and the economic uh, fallout that's come with that have uh, have been drivers of of major changes in the in the macro economy, um, which then feed through to you know policy decisions, which then. Um, both of which kind of feed into uh, the housing market and the multifamily housing market. So, so we certainly have seen you know, major changes, which which leads to kind of some tricky, um, trickier questions to answer and uh, and more uncertainty. And I, I think that everybody uh, is feeling that. But I but I do think that uh, the solid um, fund place that we've been that we've gotten to over the past decade, where where the multifamily market has performed pretty well, um, is a benefit as we, as we enter this period. But certainly then as we look at the underlying drivers that flow into um, our forecasting and our, and our views, um, those underlying variables in the short term have definitely changed. Uh, Sarah and, and her team do a ton of work on, on thinking through the details of all of this, but it gets you know, really tricky. Um, but maybe, maybe Sarah, you could t- start out and talk a little bit about, um, you know, views on on rents from from before and and views on how that's changed um, 
in the near-term forecast. Sure. Yeah. And thanks for having me on. Um, great to get on and, and talk about this um, and not be a, a recorded uh, video, um, a podcast, puts a little less pressure. Uh, but I uh, just want to reflect the sentiments that, you know, the, the first half of this year is really a tale of two economies. The, you know, up until kind of mid-March was really seeing uh, the same type of growth we had seen prior years uh, in the economy and in the multifamily market. And then we just took a, a sudden U-turn uh, with the pandemic um, and just the the amount of stress and the severity really has not been seen before um, and much less, uh, you know, how how we're going to forecast and, and our expectations for the rest of the year are going to end up playing out. Um, so it's it's kind of a whole new world for us a little bit and, uh, and trying to put this all into something that, you know, can kind of give some guidance um, uh, for the next year, um, you know, we kind of take a real look at, at what we're thinking could happen with rents and vacancies um, and all the different drivers that would impact those. Uh, so kind of thinking about, you know, how we started the year and our expectations, uh, we, we saw that employment growth was expected on its continuing track. And this year, maybe it was forecast to be a little slower, just as we were such tight uh, unemployment rates of three and a half percent February. Uh, and then at the same time, the overall strength of the employment market would help income growth. Um, and those are kind of the main drivers that would really help push up rent forecasts at the beginning of the year. Uh, that's all now changed, as, as we all know, being, you know, being seeing all the numbers in the, in the market. Um, and whereas at the beginning of the year, we were expecting rents to grow above the rate of inflation, now we're gonna. Now we're seeing rents come down, um, and at the national level, could be down one one point two percent up to the one point seven percent, and that's all based on where we're seeing the biggest drops coming from the unemployment, um, as well as now a hit to income levels. Um, so on top of that, uh, the increase in vacancy rates uh, remains a little bit uh, of a mystery. Um, you know as as we're starting to see more rent decline in second quarter numbers, while vacancy rates remain relatively consistent, uh, but there's a lot out there right now that could be uh, impacting those numbers from from the eviction moratoriums um, to the additional government aid and unemployment benefits that are helping keep people in their in their apartments and not. And then just the inability to move right now if people are in lockdown or you know don't want to don't want to risk going out to, to look at new housing. Um, uh, so it's, it's a lot of unknowns uh, going throughout this year. So, you know, one of the things that you highlight in the outlook, uh, you talk about in the second quarter, we're starting to see demand drop and, and vacancy rate rates rise. And so I want to get into that demand question because, right, uh, I would naturally think uh, demand for housing would be as high, if not higher than ever, uh, through this, but maybe the ability to pay for for that housing uh, is really where you see a, a difference. But so, are we seeing demand for is it is it demand for properties and demand for transactions being lower, but not demand for housing? I think that it, it would be a, a little bit of both, um, uh, certainly. But uh, as we think about housing, as you say, there, there's one question that housing is certainly an essential need, and uh, and you know, you know whatever is happening um, in, the, in the broader economy. 
um, a person does need a place to live. And, and that's one that's certainly getting highlighted during, during this current, um, you know, stress in, in the economy to think that how, how hard some people are hit and, um, it, it is a need for them to stay in housing. And there's certainly a ton of benefit to having stable housing. Um, but nonetheless, as we think about um, the demand for housing, you know, we, we look at um, not only, you know, growth in population, which then could potentially flow through to uh, growth in household formation. Um, and, and that growth in household formation is a function both of kind of demographics in terms of age of, of you know, the household of, of the people that potentially would form a household. And then, the, and then the, the income or wealth that they would have such that they would have the wherewithal to form a household. So, um, so if, they, uh, if, if folks um, do not have sufficient income and sufficient wealth, even if they're of the age where you might expect them to form a household, um, you know, they may, they may um, go into a shared household situation where maybe otherwise they wouldn't have... Uh, um, shared and uh, and that might be you know living with a relative, living with a parent, living with friends, and so we may see more of that, and then there would be household contraction and a little bit less demand based on the the weakening in the economy and the and the lesser ability to um, to form a household. Uh, we do think that, that that would be temporary, right? Uh, as and and that's what when we talk about the solid footing, um, we uh, we we think that. Uh, as the economy recovers, and hopefully this is a short-term shock, and then we would return to kind of previous trends. So, so let's talk about that a little bit more then, uh, because, you know, 10, 11, 12 years ago, right, we, we did have a major economic uh, event and, and a long-term recession. Uh, but there's a, there does seem to be a little bit of a potential difference here. Can, can we get into what those differences might be a little bit more? Yeah, so I think back uh, of seven leading into the the Great Recession, that was an over leveraged and oversupply situation of housing. Um, and so then when when uh, the bubble burst, you know we had an excess of supply and many properties underwater. Um, uh, you know across the whole housing industry. So it took some time in having the the market need to catch up. So you know, values were overinflated, so they came down and then took years to grow back up. Same with the oversupply, took time for, for it to be filled. Uh, but that's not what we're seeing here. There was no shock or there's no over leverage to the specific housing market or multifamily market. This was a broad economic shock uh, that impacted uh, pretty much everybody um, in the sense of either job loss or income loss or their ability just to, to move around. Uh, so, so that's where uh, it's a definitely a different shock, um, but it's also a shock that we have never seen historically. Um, we might have little pockets of, you know, in individual metros that, uh, that saw a similar type of shock, like the, the 9-11 attacks in New York City. Uh, there was sentiment after that if high rises were safe or living in a big city was safe, but, you know, those dissipated over time. Um, and that's a little bit where we think that this this will go afterwards. You know, there's going to be uh, or, or going out to restaurants or bars or gyms going to be safe anymore. Um, and the people who want that kind of lifestyle may think again a little bit about their current situation. But if those were the things important to them, then they'll still be important once we get the virus and everything under control. So one, you know, in this uh 
near term, and we talked about declining uh, income growth. We, we talked about some of the the, the challenges there, um, and we're seeing a lot of attention paid to um, you know different uh, surveys coming out in the market, um, talking about collections on a monthly basis, talking about uh, you know uh, concern about uh, evictions and a looming eviction crisis. Uh, what have what have you been seeing in the numbers uh, that you've been looking at about the state of things uh, so far? So you're talking about all those different rent collection payments. They're over different survey methods. Uh, the most uh, publicized one that we look at is the NMHCs that surveys about five different property management software uh, for the uh, percentage of rent collections that come in. And overall, at the month end numbers um, since April through June have only been off by you know, up to about three percentage points. Um, and that was early in the pandemic back in April. That was the biggest difference or gap between uh, the April month end numbers compared to the prior year, April's month end numbers. Uh, and then over time in May and June, those numbers have improved. And June was almost right on top of the same uh, rent collection percentage as it was the prior year. Um, so we, we have seen that there does seem to be strength in the amount of rent coming in. Uh, and we can contribute a lot of that, I think, to the government aid that has been uh, implemented in the CARES Act that really helped boost the unemployment benefits that those who got laid off. And it also expanded who got to fall into that category before it wasn't the gig economy type of workers um, who were able to pick up that. Now, now they can be included in that. So it definitely helped a wide swath of the population who was impacted by the pandemic. Um, so that being said, we, we are kind of right up until the, the end of the CARES Act with those additional benefits coming coming into the end at the end of this month. Uh, so so it's going to be a little bit of a, a question mark of what's going to happen next month. Um, but overall, with the relatively strong collection numbers, I think it kind of shows some, some testament to the overall strength that the market of people continuing to pay rent um, in such a high percentage, despite uh, unemployment rate jumping up to 14 0.7% in April. Yeah, and so from a you know stability of the system perspective, that's certainly encouraging. But I, I do want to get into just a little bit. Um, you cited NMHC numbers that looks at month end collections, but not all the surveys are looking at data at the same time, right? So might might show different results. Is that why we see such a, a wide range of, of stories on this? Correct. Yeah, it's different timing. Um, NMHC does do weekly results um, and they keep it to the same days of the of the month. So the first five days of the month, not necessarily the first week, since that can fall on different, uh, you know, weekdays versus weekends. But so looking at, you know, the days you have typical grace period of up to the fifth of the month to get rent in, if that falls over a weekend or a holiday, that could help, that could skew some of the numbers. But that's where you think that if you look through to the month end, that would give a little bit of a better picture uh, instead of kind of looking weekly. But many of the other 
providers on rent collection data might just do the first of the month or the first few days of the month um, as they collect it. Uh, they also have different sample sizes. The NMHC has over 11 million units uh, across five different property software firms. Uh, granted, those are geared a lot more towards the institutional side of the business. Um, so you're not going to see the smaller unit size captured in that number as much. Um, but then on the flip side, some of these other ones have, uh, you know, a tenth of that size uh, in their survey estimates. Um, and then even some others are surveying the actual homeowners or renters uh, specifically and asking, did you pay? Did you not pay? Uh, so there is going to be a lot of ver uh, variety when you think about, you know, all the different numbers and the way the survey works. Um, you know, it's just going to cause some ability to see differences between between the different ones. Yeah, that, that makes a lot of sense. Um, and so can you tell, you know, through those numbers and, and through some of the other uh, information that you're looking at, how things vary across markets in the country? Um, yeah, sure. So let me, you know, if we can talk about, you know, what, where we see kind of the, uh, the strength um, at the metro level versus the weakness, um, we're, we definitely are expecting uh, more weakness on the larger coastal metros. Um, several reasons that, one, these have typically been harder hit with the more dense population, quicker to be impacted by the virus. Um, New York City, uh, as an example, being you know pretty much the epicenter back in the spring, um, along with the the Bay Area, California, uh, and down to Southern California, where we expect to see the biggest hits uh, in those markets in terms of rents and vacancy. Uh, we then expect the uh, kind of the next step down markets and in the interior of the country to be less impacted. Um, these metros also typically don't see as strong of growth. Uh, so, you know, while they might not have the highs and the ups that the coastal gateway markets would have, uh, that kind of insulates them from seeing like the real uh, the real big downs at the same time. So the interior markets like Chicago, St. Louis, or Knoxville are actually only expected to see modest declines. Um, so we're still showing uh, weakness across the board, but kind of in those interior areas, we're not expecting as severe as we would see on the coastal or gateway metros. And I think um, an interesting thing that we get to evaluate as, as the people who look at markets and who build the models and, and look at the data that feeds into it and think about uh, the dynamics involved is, uh, you know, as, as we, so it's certainly, there's a piece of it that's intuitive to say markets that have been growing, you know, very quickly in recent years, maybe um, the markets that have some room to, to, to fall. Um, and, and that's, uh, that's intuitive. And, and also when those markets coincide with, uh, with where there's been major shutdowns and, 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 and you know, COVID-19 effects, that's, that's intuitive. I think then, you know, when we look at places like the Bay Area and we say like that we see San Jose and San Francisco having major drops in rent, then then I think it's, you know, it's one for, for us to think about and, and others in the market can think about and say like, okay, if rents start to come down in, in those areas, we know that, you know, in recent years, many people have moved um, away from those areas who would like to be closer in um, because uh, because it just wasn't affordable for them. And so, as you know, a, a, a market and as a market will you know change and update as uh, as the economy changes, and uh, 
And if rents become more affordable there, I mean, a question to ask is, is there something of a floor there? And that's something that a model um, can't tell you immediately. Um, a model is, uh, but, it, but it nonetheless gives us a kind of an, an equal way of measuring all of the different markets. I think that uh, other interesting things are there's, there's, piece, there's, there's variables that flow into the model that, um, that we can tweak um, that there, there may be a baseline forecast or expectation for them, but then there could be some variability around it. I know that uh, an interesting part of, of the work that Sarah did in the, in the outlook was um, related to supply because as we've talked about, so supply has been so high and, and there's been an expectation of continued supply. But then in the most recent data there, um, there is an expectation that there's some slowing. And so we can put in the baseline numbers and then we can also put in numbers that are a little bit lower and that'll affect the forecast. Um, so, and Sarah, I think it was you know that that change of forecast in the range of on the national level a one percent change or so. Is that right? A little over about half a percent change at the national level, but yeah, those those levers that we have, um, and then when we look at it across the different metros, can really kind of help tell you know what the main drivers are. And then as we think through some of these aspects that, as Steve mentioned, can't really be picked up in a model. But if we put kind of our judgment overlay to it, we can kind of see where, you know, how severe those impacts would be. Um, so that being said, and, and the example of where we expect some of the weakest growth in the Bay Area or San Jose, when we do these overlays to the model, and, and if we look at, you know, the, the fact that uh, construction is was slated to be the highest this year, um, but reports are already coming in that it's going to be maybe 30% less than, than original expectations or even more. That's really going to slow down the amount of new units coming on, which won't put as much pressure on the market uh, due, due to the decrease in demand given the recession. So those metrics, uh, you know, we can play with a little bit in the model, along with another major metric is if we look at additional aid that might come out of a subsequent government act. Um, so if we think about kind of how those would play through to the model, places like San Jose that right now is uh, expected to have a pretty significant impact, um, that would actually lessen the impact there quite a bit. On the flip side, though, some of the metros that aren't expected to be uh, impacted as severely, those same changes flown through to, to those metrics and for that metro would actually see very little impact there. So when you think about the different metros on the different ends of the spectrum, those that are forecasted to have some of the weakest growth have, I think, the kind of a, a greater range of upside potential to them. And I think that um, you know, it's it's then all this for us at Freddie Mac then comes back to the context of, of being in the debt market, right? And uh, and we. Um, you know, so we may forecast that uh, overall revenue declines um, in, uh, on an annual basis in the range of uh, 4%. Um, but uh, then, you know, it really matters how that flows into, you know, loan performance for our purposes. And Sarah, I know you did an analysis on that as well. Yeah, so... Thinking through how our underwriting works, we don't do uh, we don't cover underwriting just to the exact debt service. We put in a little extra at a, a 125 coverage. Uh, so when we look at what a four percent reduction in income would be to a property, 
that would only reduce a 125 coverage to a 120, which would imply that the property would still be able to make their payments. Um, you know, they can make it up to a 1.0 coverage. Uh, so, so the 4% reduction at the national level for a well-positioned property is not expected to really impact the monthly payments that it could make. So circling back to the rent collections, the 4% drops on income uh, for rental, uh, rental prices. But if you're just not getting your income from your tenants, as we were kind of talking about in the rent collections data, you know, that could, that could be something that doesn't get picked up necessarily uh, in a rent decline forecast. Uh, but kind of looking at those numbers, again, for the same type of property, uh, depending on how the property's leverage and expenses, that could really withstand about a 9 to 10 percentage point reduction in collections and still make a 1-0 coverage. Uh, so I think kind of, as Stephen, like circling all back to us being debt providers and how we underwrite the debt, uh, these numbers aren't necessarily something to be concerned about in making monthly payments. So, so that speaks to the, uh, the stability of uh, loans on the properties. Um, so I, I would imagine that you, know, you get some variation depending on just uh, where the properties are, how hard hit the local economy is, um, you know, what, what's going on on the ground there. Exactly. These are kind of on the uh, the average aggregate basis. So you're going to have properties on both ends of that tail um, and impacted differently uh, and impacted differently based on uh, what actual collections they're being seen there. This is an average rent decline or an average collections number, which can vary greatly across the different property types and metro areas. So I'd imagine then like where you have that variability in, in markets and, and on properties, that's where... Um, you know, other interventions and supports come in uh, to make a difference. Like you talked about the CARES Act earlier, or there's uh, you know, forbearance for the borrowers, uh, which allows the uh, allows them some flexibility to uh, to support the property and, and uh, get that income back. Uh, how how have you seen forbearance factor into the market? So the forbearance program we have here at Freddie Mac uh, does not allow for evictions based on non-payment due to COVID. So that's a, a great piece to help renters uh, and tenants stay in their units uh, if they're having a hard time paying. There's also rent payment plans that the property managers are using to help those tenants that, that are impacted. Uh, so that's definitely going to help keep tenants in in their units. Uh, any additional government act uh, that would help unemployment benefits will also help keep them there. But that will also be dependent on the state because uh, state level have different unemployment benefit calculations and some states are more favorable than others. Uh, and so we could actually see that there could be a little bit of stress in certain areas that don't have as favorable benefits, uh, especially if they're not enough to really cover the rent payment, um, much less anything else that they that they would get from those. And I think that uh, it's a great question on forbearance. And certainly it's something that uh, that we're seeing at a different scale than what we've seen in the past, where where we've offered forbearance as it's related to natural disasters and things like that. Um, but it is, uh, as Sarah mentioned, it's something where we can flow through a benefit all the way through to to the underlying renter, and and so I think that's uh, that's supportive of of uh, you know how the economy operates. 
And then, you know, I think about the perspective of the, uh, you know, the operators, the owner operators of those properties. And um, this is, uh, as we talked at the beginning, it's a, it's a multifamily market and a housing market that's, that's needed supply. It's needed units in the market. And, uh, and I think that there's a view that in the short term, if there's some stress where, um, folks can't make their payments. And, and then as that flows through to owners who are also um, pinched, that that uh, offering forbearance allows a piece of stability in, um, into, the, into the market that, that allows these properties to continue to operate and, uh, and allows us to kind of get through this to the post-pandemic where, where uh, we'll, we'll again focus on affordable housing. And I think that in some ways, this pandemic helps us to focus on it um, in a new way. Steve, that's very well said. And, and you know, I've been saving this question to the end uh, because it's, it's maybe the, no, the most headline-grabbing number. So for anyone who's been sticking with us the whole way, here's the, here's the payoff. Um, what, do you, uh, what do you see for the multifamily origination market size this year? What has been the impact of COVID on the overall multifamily origination market? So we ran several different scenarios uh, based on the shape and timing of the recovery. It comes out to a range about 20 to 40% lower in 2020 compared to 2019 volume numbers. Uh, and this is all based on how severe the recession is, how quick the recovery can be. Uh, so this, while a wide range, does indicate that the market is expected to be down this year compared to, to last year. Um, I think during the, the first year of the Great Recession, volume declined about, the, about 40%, so near the, the, the max end of our range. Um, but that being said, the next year's volume projections, 2021, are not expected to be as severe. And at that point, we start to see a rebound. Um, and in the strongest scenario, we could actually see it rebound back up to current 2019 levels. Uh, in the weakest, we would see uh, roughly flat down maybe about 5%. So the total picture is not expected to be as severe as during the Great Recession. But this year, we do expect it to be down uh, 20 to 40%. Um, now, that being said, Freddie Mac's role is to provide liquidity, um, and during these stressful economic times, uh, you know, we remain in the market to help that liquidity, while many other market participants have maybe stepped to the sidelines during the uncertainty to try to figure out, you know, where are valuations going to fall, how are fundamentals going to play out, um, and as, as they're kind of waiting over on the sidelines to get more comfortable with the market, we're remaining in the market. So we don't expect our volume to be greatly impacted uh, by, the, by the slowdown in the overall market. I think that was all good. And uh, I, I think that just, just to add to that, um, just thinking, you know, sitting at, 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 the, at Freddie Mac as a whole, when we look and see what's happening over on the residential side of the market, we see rates are, are, are very low right now, right? Interest rates have come in since the start of the pandemic. Um, and, uh, and that's turned into a situation where the demand for refinance on the, on the single family side is very, very high. And for a while, it was hard to work through those financings because of, because of operational activities of, of getting, you know, the, the um, due diligence done. Uh, but certainly, uh, 
it, it, there is more of an ability to do that right now. And I think that there's, you know, if not record volumes, near record volumes on the single family side. And I say on, this, on the multifamily side, um, while we don't have the same ability to prepay um, uh, as, as on a single family, there, there still is a drive for refinancing at a time like this and uh, where rates are low and things are, are looking fairly favorable. And, and that has created a, a really significant amount of demand. And, and I think that, as Sarah said, you know, we're playing a countercyclical role by being involved in the market when, when there is some uncertainty, but there is demand. And then, you know, if, if owners, uh, you know, are in a situation where um, uh, they're able to refinance and that creates uh, a, a lower um, uh, cost of debt and, uh, and this is a time where cash flows on the properties are squeezed because of um, rents not growing or people un unable to pay rents. Um, there's a little bit more of a buffer. So that, that is a case where we're providing some stability by being there to provide these refinancings. And, uh, you know, in the overall uh, origination market as well, acquisitions are picking up again. I think that, uh, you know, when we look in the broad scope of, of uh, all commercial real estate, um, you know, that there's certainly there, there's shifts in the economy everywhere, but, uh, you know, hotels and retail are certainly hit uh, very dramatically. And, um, you know, multifamily looks relatively, uh, relatively stable. And, uh, and I think that uh, to, to some of the discussions that we had before about the importance of uh, a home and, uh, and those kind of things play through. And then, and then certainly the, uh, the government support in, in a way that allows people to, um, to continue to pay their rents and to continue to stay in place um, is, is allowing the, the market to continue to function in somewhat of a, with some, uh, some bit of normalcy in the multifamily side, relatively speaking. All right. So, so you guys, we talked about the, uh, the refi business uh, and, and things picking up a little bit, but still have a, a little bit of sticker shock uh, from that 20 to 40% decline, you know, so how, how worried should I be about that? Yeah, I think that, uh, you know, as we look at this year and we compare it to other years and whether we do it with, uh, you know, the pace of multifamily mortgage origination or, you know, you look through to people that are leasing apartments, certainly when this pandemic happened was the spring and people normally would be, you know, leasing season would be at a high and, and you'd see tons of leasing, but, but that fell and, uh, and that actually is picking up right now, right? And so we're seeing a reasonable amount of activity in that space. And kind of, as I said, on the single family side as well, on the, on the multifamily side, there were operational issues in the debt market, right? Which made it a little bit harder and a little bit more uncertainty about getting through to, uh, to um, get a mortgage. Certainly Freddie Mac made uh, a lot of efforts to, to make sure that we continued to be a, pres a presence in the market throughout, even going to operational um, uh, activities like, uh, um, uh, uh, you know, site visits that were virtual. And, and things like that. But, um, you know, there is a little bit more movement to, to normal. And, uh, and as I said, on the leasing side, on the single family side and in the multifamily origination side. And I think that that's just a signal that the market, you know, at this point um, is kind of um, getting back to normal. And that gets us, you know, through to think about, uh, you know, what we thought would have thought about future views, you know, before the pandemic and where the market stood. 
And I think if you kind of, again, look at the history, the past 10 years has seen tremendous growth in the multifamily market with above average rent growth, below average vacancy rates. So we came into this and very well positioned uh, to withstand some of these stress. Uh, and that being said, it still remains a strong asset class for investors, um, one of the strongest of commercial real estate. So despite the slowdown this year, it's still viewed very favorably. And the fact that the long-term demographics are still there to help support the market once we get through this uh, is going to help uh, keep the keep the market moving and you know expectations that it'll remain a strong market. Uh, in the foreseeable future. Right. Well, thank you so much. And that's, that's uh, good to understand. And, uh, you know, on this, uh, on this episode, Steve, I haven't had the benefit of you asking all the smart questions as my co-host. So um, if you could come back in and pretend to be co-host just for the rest of the episode, are there any other questions that uh, I should have asked you guys? That's a great question. So let me, um, <laughs> <laughs> you know, as, as we talk about this with other people, um, you know, there's always an interest in rents and vacancies. There's the interest in, you know, how that flows through to debt and, uh, and different markets. I think um, all those things, there's, there's pieces of that that flow into property prices as well. And so, so we do um, take a quick look at property prices where there is a fair amount of uncertainty right now. Um, but uh, so maybe if I were to ask a question, it would be, you know, what, what's our views on property prices um, given everything that's happening? So it's a great question, um, and um, and as you said, like it's uh, with the rents and vacancy information that we know um, and how it can play through. Uh, there's definitely been some movement on the property price side. Um, second quarter information just came out from Real Capital Analytics, um, actually shows relatively flat quarter growth, uh, which is the first time that it's been flat since the recovery. So over 10 years, um, annualized growth still up 7%. Um, and historically, going back to the start of the recovery, it's been annualized on average 10% growth. So very strong growth going back. But So we do see that there's starting to impact property prices, um, which is expected. If you're expecting rents to be down, vacancies to be up, you're gonna see that flow through to property prices. Um, that being said, though, cap rates have remained relatively flat um, given the fallout in the Treasury rate. So with the Treasury rate down the past few months and cap rates remaining flat, the cap rate spread or the difference between those two uh, has risen to you know, near historical highs, um, you know, above 450 basis points. Um, so that helps lessen the blow to uh, property price growth expectations because you have such a wide spread there uh, to help capture kind of some of that uncertainty. Uh, but given the trajectory of the market with lower rents and higher vacancies, we will expect that to flow through into property price appreciation this year. Yeah, and I think that uh, that's very well said. And um, the, the, the beginning of the pandemic, the acquisition market was so slow, there were very few transactions. And so, you know, having seen the stability in property pricing is, is reassuring. And, and certainly in the months ahead, I think that we'll learn a lot about um, uh, prices as, as we start to see some new transactions. And, uh, and I believe that is, you know, as, as we uh, are recording this in July, I think that, that this is kind of the time where, where acquisitions have started to pick up just a little bit. And, uh, and that's an encouraging sign in and of its own. 
yeah, I think that's, I think that we've pretty well covered it then. Well, good. We can end on an encouraging note. Uh, so Steve, uh, thanks for uh, stepping onto the other side of the mic today and being a guest. And Sarah, thank you so much for being on. Thanks for having me. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Freddie Mac Multifamily Podcast. If you'd like to learn more, follow us on LinkedIn, Twitter, and Facebook, and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.